Welcome to episode 178 of the Institute of Performance Nutrition's We Do Science podcast, the IOPM podcast. I'm Laura Brannock, and today I had a discussion, a really fascinating discussion, with Professor Neil Walsh about sleep and the athlete. Now, yeah, I've I've gone into this topic before uh, with Dr. Shona Halson, for example, another expert on this topic who's actually co-authored one of the papers that we talked about today with Professor Neil Walsh. Because it's just that interesting. And uh, there's been some new developments in this area, which we get into in today's conversation and just generally cover the topic again in a number of different ways, which I think you'll find of of enormous value. I mean, face it, we all we all have an idea about whether we've slept well or not. And there is no doubting the importance of sleep, at least on how we feel. And certainly for our athletes, we want to help them perform and function at their very best. And sleep really has a broad range of impacts, whether it's uh, cognitive functions, uh, performance, health, recovery, and indeed to us as nutritionists, the decisions, the influences that it may impact in terms of reaching for things like coffee, caffeine, of course, and foods that might make us feel better if we're feeling a bit rotten from a lack of sleep. But it is an incredibly important area. And as the body of knowledge in this area continues to evolve, I, for one, am particularly interested in talking to the experts about what we should know about this. So anyway, you're about to hear about sleep and the athlete in just a few seconds. But before I do, please do check out the page for this podcast. I'm trying to develop this section on the website further bear with me, but there will be a lot more resources in the coming weeks and months on our website. But you can, for now, at least access the papers that we refer to all on all under podcast at www.theiopn.com and just click on podcast there, of course. Uh, whilst you're there, check out our educational outputs, uh, particularly our flagship program, our advanced professional diploma in sports nutrition. The latest version of that program is uh, about to launch this November 2022. It's just an enormous evolution in everything that we've done. We're incredibly excited about it. It is entirely unique in as far as it is entirely focused on uh, developing your skills and knowledge in the area of applying the science of sport and exercise and nutrition into practice. So it's heavily focused on practice, helping you do your very best with your clients, with your athletes, with your teams in terms of the strategies and the coaching skills that goes with it. There's nothing else like it. So go check it out at www.theiopn.com. Whilst you're there, check out our software, which is also there to support you as practitioners working either with private clients, group coaching online, team settings in any area of sport and exercise nutrition from active members of general public to elite professional football players, rugby players, Olympians, and so on. This is what I use it for to great impact. So I know that you will find it of great value. You can learn about that at www.theiopn.com and also our various other offerings that we have. And as I said, some massive news that will be coming very soon about our institute and also the various things that we offer. You can check that out at www.theiopn.com. Anyway, for now, please enjoy this conversation that I had with Professor Neil Walsh about sleep and the athlete. Enjoy. Hi, and welcome to the Institute of Performance Nutrition's We Do Science podcast. Today, I have 
Professor Neil Walsh with me today. Now, do not adjust your headsets or your sound because Neil is possibly the bravest guest that I've had on today because he is suffering, shall we say, from something we've all heard of in the past few years, but he is being a proper soldier about this and uh, he's going to come and have this chat with me about sleep and the athlete and how that affects health and so on. And it might be uh, a rather apt conversation to discuss his own sleep habits and how that might have influenced his own current condition. (laughs) Anyway, Neil, welcome back. And of course, I say welcome back because you're not new to the podcast. We've talked about athlete health and immunity in the past, and you've done some lectures for us quite a few years ago now. We've just been discussing how old we both are. But anyway, welcome back, Neil, and thank you for for doing this, even though you're not feeling too hot right now. Thank you, Lauren. I, I thought it was man flu, but I think I've, I've recently found out it's COVID. So apologize for for the audio and, and the odd sneeze. Look, I really appreciate you, you being on today. I know there may be a little bit of coughing and whatnot, but uh, I think we'll still manage to, to have a, a productive chat for everyone. Now, we have discussed this concept of sleep before, and I've had Shona Halson on before uh, a few years ago now to talk specifically about sleep in the athlete. But the body of knowledge on that has evolved somewhat since those conversations. But also, very recently, you published another study beyond the BJSM review, narrative review on sleep and the athlete, which is part of what we're going to talk about. But specifically, you've got another study that came out on perceived sleep or good perceived sleep quality and how that may impact upper respiratory tract infections uh, is a particularly interesting area for reasons we'll we'll get into. But, but Neil, tell us a little bit more about yourselves. Not everyone has listened to those prior podcasts or, or may not yet know who you are. So just give us a quick intro as to as to who you who you are and what you're currently up to. Of course, Lauren. Yes, yeah, so I'm Professor Neil Walsh. I'm a professor of applied physiology at Liverpool John Moores. I joined uh, Liverpool John Moores University in 2019. And before that, I spent nearly 20 years at Bangor University, where I sort of uh, led the extremes research group. We have a lot of interest in the health and performance of athletes, but also military personnel. So we sort of look at all of those factors that sort of impact health and performance in military recruits. That could be nutrition, it could be stress and anxiety. And obviously sleep is one of our really key focuses right now. Yeah. You know, some people are going to be listening to this going, how I thought this podcast is about nutrition. Well, we we talk about various topics on exercise physiology, sports science, health, and so on that's relevant to athlete health and performance. But also sleep is a particularly interesting area because it is an area that does engage the nutritionist or the performance nutritionist quite a bit. I certainly find myself dealing with sleep education and and athletes and or trying to impact sleep because that can have some interesting links to nutrition, for example, uh, as per previous podcasts on this topic, where we've been looking at how sleep quality might affect satiety, hunger, sort of the choices that people make in terms of food and beverages and stimulants and various other things, which we'll get into. But this concept of sleep and athlete health performance is is a very broad one, obviously, hence not just your area of research in in athletes and 
tactical athletes, military personnel, and and so on. But it's something I think we're all interested in as adults, particularly parents. In my case, I've had years of sleep disturbance thanks to my lovely children. And one way or the other, it's something I, I you can't really ignore this concept of, of sleep. So the idea that we can impact it for a better quality of life and, of course, potential improvements in performance and or reducing the negative consequences that may be linked to it is is of interest to so many people but i'm in, you know i'm interested the listeners are interested but why did you get into this topic as deep as you did neil well i started out in my career i guess as a as a as an exercise scientist and exercise physiologist and after many years of of sort of assessing the impact of exercise during training on, for example, the immune system, so infections and immune function in athletes and soldiers, I started to realize that exercise is only one small part. Stressors like exercise stress influence the immune system, so our health generally, by activating the stress axis, the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, And exercise is only but one stressor. The athlete or the soldier has to deal with psychological stress. They have to deal with disruption to sleep, whether it's traveling to a major competition and jet lag or it's deprivation of sleep. They might be suffering poor sleep. They also have times when their nutrition might not be adequate and exposure to extreme environments. So we now take in my team a more holistic approach. We understand the sort of pressures on the athlete's health are multifactorial. We we can't just look through the lens of nutrition, for example, Lauren. So it sort of opened our minds. Yeah. And I mean, you've taken me right back to our earlier conversation a few years ago about that holistic viewpoint that you use when we look at the health of an athlete rather than very specific reductionist, if you like, perspectives on what impacts immunity in in athletes, of course, in what we're interested in. But that bigger, you know, the the, the sort of the combined thing that, you know, we exist through 24 hours doing lots of different things as human beings, as athletes and so on. And there's personal issues, there's professional issues, there's stuff happens, right? And of course, that combined load is all very interesting. And of course, yep, that's going to impact sleep or sleep will impact that as part of that. And I like that perspective that you've taken. So definitely want the listeners to listen to that podcast if we haven't already done so and that paper that you've done that links to that. But, you know, we're talking about sleep specifically. And I think what would be helpful here is if you could actually define that word sleep and then contextualize that into why it's important for human beings anyway. Why why do we even need to sleep? Yeah, that's that's an important one. And it was the founding father, if you like, of modern sleep medicine, Alan Rick Staffan, way back 50 odd years ago, who said that, you know, if sleep doesn't serve an absolutely vital function, then it was the biggest mistake that evolution has ever made. And you have famous people who Thomas Edison was a very famous inventor who reckoned that sleep was something that should have been left in the dark ages in the caves. And he slept uh, for about three to four hours a night. And we know of all these other famous people, politicians, pop stars and so on, who apparently survived on very little sleep. So what do we know about sleep and why, why is it important? Well, the offline conditions in sleep we know are important for 
cognitive function, memory development, learning, and not least for the physical function that we're so interested in. Studies have shown in animals and in humans that only a small amount of sleep disruption or deprivation over a day or two, so sleep complete sleep loss, for example, over a day or two, really reduces memory, cognition, attention. And then, of course, we know that studies now show that endurance, performance, etc., is also lowered by uh, sleep deprivation. The effects of more prolonged, sort of more subtle disruption are not particularly clear on, on, on exercise performance. You know, it's very rare that an athlete would miss a whole night's sleep, for example, like a soldier would. And we know that disrupts performance. So we know that sleep is very, very important for health and performance. And you have these typically sleep is broken up into four stages throughout the night that cycle every 90 minutes or so. The first three stages are non-rapid eye movement sleep. The first two of those three stages are quite light sleep. And stage three is more deep sleep. We know that stage three or deep sleep is very, very important for the immune system. And that when, when you ask somebody about how they rate their quality of sleep, that seems to relate quite well to stage three sleep measured using polysomnography. And then finally, stage four sleep or REM sleep, which is rapid eye movement sleep where your eyes are moving behind your eyelids. Your body tends to be paralyzed in that in that sleep phase. And this is when most of our dreaming occurs. And that's a good thing because obviously you, you don't want to act out your dreams. So being paralyzed during REM sleep is, is actually quite, quite a good thing. But it's that stage of sleep that seems to be well related to sort of dreaming, memory development and cognition and emotion. So each of those stages are important. We also know, Lauren, as I get, I'm sure we'll get into, that athletes do suffer poor sleep. Yeah. And that phrase, poor sleep in itself is interesting because... We talked about defining sleep and what it is, which, of course, we have, you know, you're able to talk about that for a period of time or write about that for a period of time. But where are actually where are we actually in in that definition of sleep and conceptualizing what we do and don't know about what sleep is and why or is it not important? I mean, you, for example, used the phrase there, famous inventors and rock stars make comments about how they've survived for a period of time but perhaps if they more than survived and thrived perhaps they would have done even greater things what are your thoughts on that well and also i mean i, I won't get into this this is not my area of expertise but you know there's and now an interest in long-term sleep problems and of course dementia for example we also know that people who have chronic sleep debts so these are short sleepers over the long term. There's a greater incidence of inflammatory diseases in those individuals with chronic short sleep. Here we're talking about inflammation. So, you know, you see increases in those populations with IL-6 and CRP, inflammatory cytokines and the like. They have increased incidence of type 2 diabetes, heart disease, obviously obesity is more common. Um, so we know that there is a long-term impact to mental health, but also physical health of chronically sleeping short, Lauren. I guess what's interesting, and there's going to be a few rabbit holes, I think we'll we'll, we'll <laughs> slip down here. We're not just talking about human beings existing in the real world, civilian life or general population stuff. We are talking about high-performing individuals. And that's 
I've talked about this before. The, the, the reason why I prefer the term performance nutrition, for example, is because that enables us to encompass the broader range of high-performing individuals, whether it's, yes, athletes, which in itself requires definitions, of course, particularly when we use word, words like elite. But there are people like tactical athletes, not just soldiers or special forces operatives, but also police, the fire services. Some of those people can be very high-performing. I'm thinking of of individuals with all the effects of climate change. We see all these fires, for example, you know, and, and there are people engaged in unbelievable high-performing requirements, physically, mentally demanding, where there are going to be impacts to their to their sleep. So we're not just talking about will this, won't this affect somebody's ability to write something, be creative, or win a gold medal. It can be life and death. It's pretty, pretty critical. And that, I guess, goes back to your comment about it could be the biggest mistake that evolution ever made. And intuitively, we all do feel the importance of sleep. But in the context of high-performing individuals, and we'll bag them into the term athlete, whether it's tactical or professional, Olympic, whatever, why, though, is sleep something that we should be spending at least the bare minimum of time to try and correct or improve? Well, we spend about a third of our life sleeping to, to first off. And we know, and um, we talked about this in the consensus review in British Journal of Sports Medicine uh, 2021, that I was very lucky enough to, to lead a, a, a cadre of amazing uh, experts on this topic. So we, we know that sleep is really important for athlete health and performance. You know, there's good evidence that disrupted sleep over the long term has negative impacts on athlete performance. And also how the athlete feels when they wake up in the morning, you know, their mood, how refreshed do they feel in the morning? We know from mainstream science that, 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 that sleep loss impacts on the immune system via activating the endocrine axis that we've talked about numerous times before. So I think we know that sleep is important for general health. We know it's important for the health of the athlete and, and therefore performance. So I think it's, you know, we need to do what we can to to optimize sleep in our athletes to avoid performance deficits for example when you increase training load lauren in athletes good training studies uh, overreaching type studies where uh, there's an increase in load we do see an impact a negative impact on sleep you see changes in sleep duration and sleep efficiency the percentage of time spent in better sleep and this seems to relate well with poor performance during overreaching for example now, it's a chicken and egg situation. We don't know, for, of course, from these studies, whether when an athlete increases their training load and they suffer poor sleep, which is it kind of, you know, which causes which? The, the, the mood disturbance you see, is that because of poor sleep or is it that the heavy training alters mood and stress and that alters sleep? Or is it something to do with the immune system that's lowered during very heavy training and stress? And that that then increases your chance of getting ill. And we know that illness upsets sleep. We, we don't really know fully about that, that interplay of those different things. But we, we are very clear now that sleep is very, very important for athlete performance and health. I cast my mind back to various conversations with you and Shona in particular about these sorts of topics. And it is incredibly interesting about what what the evidence appears to be telling us. And of course, there's differences in the evidence, quality, relevance of that evidence, which we can dip into in a second. But 
you know, it is something that one way or the other, we we seem to have an idea, whether it's just a reflection of, ah, I didn't sleep well last night or I did sleep well. For whatever the cause is, we still have a feeling whether or not we had a good night's sleep. And that in itself is interesting. And we'll talk about your new research in a minute about the potential difference between the perception or not perceiving it, because I find that particularly interesting. But we do live in a gadget-driven gadget infested world which i'm definitely a techie sort of guy I love gadgets and i've experimented with various devices to assess activity and stress levels and sleep quality and so on but as per many of the conversations that i've had with with experts doing the highest level of research in these areas there seems to be a pretty big gap between the quality and relevance of the information that's delivered by some of these these tools that we have widely available, whether they're validated or commercially available is again, another topic, but one way or the other sleep is something that we can sort of put our finger on it. But that in itself, of course, is a big issue, isn't it, Neil? Because how do we even assess this? So so maybe, maybe you could tell us what happens at the highest level and then how does that trickle down to what we think we can measure and the reality of what we're actually measuring or not measuring in the in the sleep laboratory of course you can use sophisticated polysomnography and that will allow you and the very controlled conditions to to assess those sleep stages that we talked about earlier on those four sleep stages non-rem and rem sleep the challenge of course for us working with athletes and military personnel in the field is well how how do you how do you take the lab to the field how do you have objective useful measures of sleep whether that be the quantity of sleep or the quality in the field and again in our consensus review Shona wrote a really nice section on the measurement tools the most validated and practical, of course, is the actigraph, which is a small wrist uh, worn like a watch that measures the movement. And, and that has been validated well against uh, polysomnography, the gold standard. But of course, as you know, there are now a myriad of commercially available devices that you can wear on your wrist. You have the nearables, the phone apps, your phone sits by your pillow, you have the ring, you know, you have so many different devices that are available. And not all of those devices, as you've alluded to, are validated. The actigraph is the one that's mostly used in larger population studies because it's validated. Then the other issue as well is that we can't access as scientists the algorithms that are used to produce the sleep data from these devices. So there's a lot out there in terms of available devices and apps that you can use. How do you use them and how do you interpret them? I mean, one of the worries that we've talked about regularly is that athletes become obsessed and really worried about looking at their sleep data. And, you know, you you can't unsee your sleep data in the morning and you see that your sleep duration wasn't was far shorter than normal the morning of a competition. We can see the problems with that quite easily. And your sleep quality was poor. What do you do about it? So I I think that's something for a sports scientist really to consider carefully in terms of education about sleep and about the use of those devices. But certainly, if you want to get valuable information as a researcher, the actigraph is useful in a field setting because it compares well with the gold standard. But the validity of the other devices has not always been tested, Lauren, unfortunately. Yeah, and that 
That I find interesting as a practitioner myself. It's an area that we regularly explore on this podcast. These discussions come up all the time about we can measure, but should we measure? You know, what are the strengths and limitations of these devices? And and I mean, I think back to uh, a podcast I did with Dr. Julia Bone, and we talked about DEXA. You know, is it really gold standard or as she proposes, possibly gold-plated. But at the end of the day, a lot of this will boil down to our understanding of the strengths and limitations. And actually, a lot of these things all have value. It's just a question of of how you choose to use it and interpret it. And like you said, there could be some some problems there. But I know for myself personally, using these gadgets, you know, I've been absolutely fine when I wake up, and then my phone tells me that I didn't get enough sleep. And that then takes me into the a, a conversation I want to have with you now about the relevance and role of the perception of sleep. Because we all do. We all wake up, talked about it earlier, and we've all had an idea of, oh, you know, I didn't sleep very well. I asked my kids every morning, did you sleep all right? It's always interesting to hear their responses. But of course, we then get the impact of these devices. Um, the perception versus the actual amount of sleep. There's, you know, what did you guys find about that? Well, I think the the first thing to say is that there are good laboratory studies in sleep labs that show when you ask somebody how good was their sleep last night on, say, a one to four scale from one very poor to four very good, that actually individuals are very good at actually rating the quality of their sleep compared with objective polysomnography measures. So, for example, when you ask somebody about their quality of their sleep, they often relate that to how quickly they got to sleep. So they'll tell you it was a really good sleep if they had a short sleep latency, how long it takes to get to sleep. And also when you ask somebody about the quality of last night's sleep, not only do they think about, well, how quickly did I get to sleep? But they also think, well, how how disturbed or not was my sleep? How continuous was my sleep? And there are good studies actually from Akersted's group some of the work that was done originally at Liverpool, John Moores as well, that shows that people are very good at rating the quality of their sleep. And that relates tightly to the polysomnography, the, the objective measures. And what, what happened with, with our recent work is we and others have, have published studies showing that in soldiers and, and Sheldon Cohen had published work in the general population, that individuals who short sleep, so individuals who sleep less than the recommended seven hours, they are more likely to get respiratory infections. Sheldon did a very famous study where he quarantined individuals. He placed the common cold, he placed that up the nostril, one of five common cold viruses, and he he quantified their sleep in the two weeks before. And sure enough, individuals who had had short sleep were much more likely to then develop the cold in the quarantine, the hospital environment. We did the same in a large military population. We showed that military recruits during training who slept less than six hours consistently were four times more likely to report to the to the the, the doc uh, with a respiratory infection. And many years went by after these studies. And then I fell upon a study on pneumonia risk in nurses. It was part of the nurses health study where they had nearly 60,000 female nurses. And what they did was they looked at pneumonia risk and the length of sleep in these women. And what they showed, the main message of their study, was that if you have 
five hours sleep or less a night, you are much more likely to have pneumonia. And this was not surprising because it fits with the work on other respiratory illnesses like the common cold, like Sheldon Cohen had done, like we had done with the military recruits. But when you look a bit more closely in their results section, there's a really fascinating finding, Lauren, which didn't make a big headline in their paper, which was they'd also asked the women nurses, um, do you feel that your sleep duration is adequate? So they asked them a question that was more individualistic, if you like. Was your sleep adequate? And in those individuals who said their sleep was inadequate, again, those individuals who slept less than five hours were more likely to get pneumonia. But the real bombshell for me that I, I couldn't stop thinking about for a couple of years, and it led to our recent research, was that actually the, end of the nurses who slept less than five hours, who thought their sleep was adequate, they had no greater risk of pneumonia than those individuals who were getting seven or eight hours, as is the recommended for, for, for adults. So there seemed to be some protection provided against respiratory illness in those individuals who did really short sleep. You know, this is five hours or less sleep, but that had somehow thought their sleep was adequate. They'd got enough sleep. So this raises the spectre that Actually, we need to be pushing less than just the duration recommendation, but considering the individual sleep needs. It's it's probably not appropriate to just consider that we all need seven to nine hours sleep. You know, we've all got individual sleep needs. So this, Lauren, sent us on a path. So what happened was we'd had that large population of military recruits and we'd originally looked at the duration they slept and their risk of illness. And we'd shown that short sleepers get more sick. But what we also did in that study was we'd asked them at the start of their training, what was the quality of your sleep last night on a one to four scale? Which is a very standard question used. It's actually in the, in the standard uh, Pittsburgh sleep questionnaire. So it's used in hundreds and hundreds of studies. What was your sleep like last night? Was it from very poor, that's a, a one, to four, very good? So we've gone back to our data and taken a, a fresh look. What we also did in that paper that's just been published in the journal Sleep is we, again, we individualized because we're now starting to take an approach thinking about the individual. We individualized the level of sleep restriction that the recruit was experiencing at the start of military training relative to the sleep that they normally got during civilian life. So they turned up at training. We asked them about what time do you normally go to bed? What time do you normally wake up in your previous life? And then in the first week of training, we, we, we found out about their sleep last night. So early training, they're, they're not sleeping. You know, they're getting up quite early. And we asked them about their quality. And we did that again at the 12th and final week of training. What time do you go to bed last night? What time did you wake up this morning? And, and, and we asked them about quality. So. By going back to the data, what we were then enabling was we could look at the level of sleep restriction that they were experiencing versus their civilian life. And studies in this space have actually used two hours as a kind of key cutoff where beyond two hours, you know, this is sleep restriction. Anything less than two hours is not really sleep restriction. And studies have shown impacts on inflammation using that cutoff of two hours, heart disease risk and so on. And also but between the working week and the weekend, 
it tends to be about an hour and a half to two hours more sleep that most of us get at the weekend compared with getting up early for the for the busy workday. And so there were two real main findings, Lauren, in this in this new study. The first one isn't that surprising. It's that those military recruits who had sleep restriction, so more than two hours sleep loss compared with their previous civilian life, they were three times more likely to suffer respiratory illnesses than those who had less than two hours of restriction. But that was only a small part of our finding. The really exciting finding, which aligns quite well with that study of pneumonia, was that when we delved a little bit deeper and we looked at the sleep restriction group, what we saw was startling. What we saw was that quality of the sleep mediated the effect of sleep restriction on illness. In simpler terms, what we saw was that the effects of sleep restriction on illness were driven by those people who reported poor sleep quality. If you if you had good sleep quality last night, but you were suffering sleep restriction, you were at no greater risk of suffering respiratory illness. The individuals who had no sleep restriction at all. So it seems that we can't just look at duration and how much restriction somebody's suffering compared with their preference for how long they sleep. You have to consider the quality of sleep as well. I know that was a bit lengthy, but I hope that makes sense. Oh, no, it's fascinating, Neil, because that perfectly brings me into a conversation I want to have about this this area that you've already introduced about quantity versus quality. But also if we bring this to what I consider to be particularly relevant, and that is that as a practitioner, I'm working with individuals, even if I'm working with a team, it's a team of individuals. And clearly there are differences between those individuals. And we're not even talking yet about the imposed demands of sport and travel. And if we go down the military pathway there are beyond basic training you know actual serving soldiers and operatives that have a very chaotic situation that they're in and 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 not only is it is it unpredictable it's pretty well yeah we don't even have to go there however we're trying to understand not at this point just how important sleep is but what can we actually do about it and you know, I guess the measuring it, the understanding the quality and the quantity and so on is what gets really interesting. So tell us a bit more about that and also how individuals will vary as well. Yeah. And, and there's there's some really nice information, one of Charlie Sargent's papers in IGSPP with athletes that almost highlights even more the relevance of this. You talked about individual differences between athletes and what they did in their work with uh, 175 athletes, small proportion of them were female. They were elite athletes. What they've done is they've shown that athletes do suffer sleep restriction. So, and again, this is not a surprise, but what they show is that the athletes are restricting their sleep to make way, for example, for their training in exactly the same way as, as we're doing when we get up early for the morning commute or we get up early in the working week just to start work early and, and get ahead of the game. And in the same way that our military recruits, they they, they got up early in the morning to, to start training. So what they showed, Sergeant and, and colleagues, is that 
they ask the athletes, what is your sleep need? How much sleep do you think you need to feel refreshed? And most of the athletes said, just over eight hours. I need about eight and a bit hours to feel refreshed and okay. But then they measured what they actually got using an actigraph, the wrist-based device we talked about. And most of these athletes were not getting the eight and a bit hours that they wanted. They were getting under seven hours. Uh, the values were 8.3 hours and 6.7. So you've got an over an hour and a half of sleep deficit, which is the difference between the measured sleep using the, the objective device on the wrist and the amount of sleep that the athlete thought they needed. And there was a, a deviation of over an hour amongst those athletes. So I looked very carefully at their data and was just as startled not just that, oh, golly, they're getting an hour and a half or more less than they need. But actually, there was a huge tail, as you allude to. There was a big variation in, in the spread. And then it depended also, did the deficit on the sport, and this won't come as a surprise to you, that sports like swimming had the largest deficits. Uh, the swimming group actually was two hours which is the same as our two hour cutoff that we used in our military study and that general sleep scientists have used, you know, in their studies of cardiovascular disease risk and sleep restriction. The swimmers had a two hour deficit of the actual sleep they were getting compared with what they thought they needed. The triathletes were the same. And most of a good proportion of that deficit won't surprise you. It's just like the military setting. It's because they're getting up so much early, earlier in the morning. Because for triathletes and swimmers, you know, the swim early in the morning is just ingrained in their culture. And they were getting up, at, you know, they were going to bed at 11 p.m. or just after and getting up at around 6 a.m. Whereas they probably needed to be getting up at seven, half seven or even eight o'clock in the morning. But they just have to get up early to fit their training in, to fit their life in. So sleep restriction is clearly something that we are most of us are doing, whether we're elite athletes getting up early for the commute or a military recruit. And this is having a, an impact on, on health and more than likely their performance. And I also think this is a problem for the studies of performance in sleep, because there's been some really exciting work recently on banking sleep. Can you bank extra sleep or extend your sleep? And, and can this improve performance? And there's been some quite positive findings on that. In endurance athletes where, for example, they extend their sleep over two or three days and then they see that the sleep extension actually improves endurance performance. But when you interpret that in this new context of sleep restriction, it's really hard to know whether the improvements in performance with sleep extension are true effects of banking extra sleep or they're just restorative recovery sleep. Because even in those studies of sleep banking, what you see, Lauren, is that the athletes are sleeping less than seven hours before they actually extended their sleep. Because just like these swimmers we're talking about here and other athletes, most athletes are already restricting their sleep. So we don't know if sleep banking is improving performance because they're, it's recovery sleep because they've been sleep, sleeping short or it's a true effect, Lauren. Yeah, that's really interesting. And it, again, just from a sort of casual observation of what happens in one's in the real world real life you know there are there are there are situations like with your many athletes will have a schedule that they are 
they have a program of events and so on where I guess to a certain extent they can they can strategically sleep around that schedule. Whereas, for example, with active serving soldiers in combat situations, for example, will have considerable amounts of sleep disturbance, sleep restriction or whatever for for obvious reasons. And so it goes in in normal people's lives, not to say that soldiers aren't normal people, but in regular people could be uh, a car honking its horn late at night or your children waking you up. There's going to be a tolerable amount of this disturbances that the body can handle without it impacting performance. And of course, we go back to the concept of the individual. And some people are also, you, you, you know, you talked about chronotypes, you know, morning people, evening people, and larks and, and, and so on. I mean, if, you know, sort of mixing all of that together, what are the, what are the, what are the issues that that raises for you, particularly from a researcher's perspective, because you're generalizing a lot of things, not you specifically, but that's how one approaches the research of this. And how do we therefore tease out what we're supposed to know about this as a consequence of that? The problem here is, 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 the over-reliance on a one-size-fits-all, whether it's sleep recommendations, you know, for an adult to get seven to nine hours, for example, or the way in which we approach our research studies, we we often adopt the one-size-fits-all. And what we've learned, or certainly I've learned in my, in my research career, is that many of these things are individual and the sleep need is, is, is certainly individual uh, and the degree of sleep restriction in those elite athletes I mentioned a minute ago there was a massive spread on, on the amount of sleep restriction between the sleep they were getting the duration they were getting and what they felt they needed so I think we need to better account for the individual and their needs we also need to account for the quality or in, in this case you know in our case the perceived quality and that relates quite well to the objective measures of quality for sure. There are lots of other problems with the research too, Lauren, you know, that there are too few uh, female participants in the studies, the measures we've talked about, not necessarily objective measures always. And then the other limitations in terms of the methods and statistics in terms of, it was only by going back to our data on sleep duration and infection that we unraveled this this important finding you have to delve deeper and and go beyond the face value and then there's that aha moment then the light bulb goes off and you say oh my word we did measure quality i wonder if that had an effect and we're often a bit one-dimensional lauren i think yeah yeah well i i mean it seems that way doesn't it and i think you've made it clear that sleep quality is is a pretty major part of this, but that will, of course, vary from people to people based on their circumstances, which I always find it interesting how technical the concept of sleep architecture is. You can spend a lot of time reading about how how complex sleep is and the various phases of, of sleep, but it would be worth just quickly delving into that in terms of what's relevant about that as it relates to the circumstances that athletes will find themselves in? Yeah, so I, I think the first thing to say is that we're not just pushing quality because in our findings, actually, there was no effect of good quality in those individuals who, there was no beneficial effect of good quality in those individuals who had no sleep restriction. So it was an interaction 
which we showed, whereby when you're sleep restricted, quality matters. And in that setting of sleep restriction, what we saw was that good perceived sleep quality and sleep restriction was protective, but that the effects on infection of sleep restriction were driven by those people who had poor quality. So it's certainly not that quality is just more important than duration. There's an interaction between, there's an interplay between the duration or in our case, the amount of sleep restriction and the quality. So I think both are really, really important. But the, remember, we individualized the sleep restriction based upon the individual's civilian sleep before they started training. So it's also important to individualize this. So we're, we're definitely not saying don't measure sleep duration, don't measure architecture. Although, of course, in the field, it's going to be very, very difficult to measure the architecture. You would normally want to do that in a sleep lab. So that's very, very difficult to do in the field. And the, the commercially available portable PSG systems, you know, are not necessarily gold standard, if you like. So it's duration and quality that matters. But to this point, Lauren, I think it's really fair to say, even amongst sleep scientists, that they have had an over-reliance and an over-obsession with duration rather than quality. Yeah, no, that I, I, I'm really pleased you you went back over that because that's a big relief to most of us, I think, where we feel there are aspects of this we can't control, i.e. the lorry beeping in the night or our kids waking us up or bullets flying over your head, but there are opportunities that may present themselves uh, or we can schedule in or plan in and or program around it and i'm thinking not just you know what we as individuals or as practitioners helping our athletes our clients but also people that are designing training schedules travel schedules and so on all need to get involved where an aspect of their consideration should be the impact on sleep so what would those considerations be? And I guess the main thing people are going to be wanting to get into here is what what, what sort of the strategies you know can we employ to optimize this whole situation? Yeah, and the really good news here is that our science here can be implemented because the next question somebody would ask, or they would say, well, if I'm restricting my sleep and we know that poor quality sleep increases illness risk, then how can I get good quality sleep, even if it's short sleep? And there are some really simple tips that, that the, the athlete should follow. We did talk about some of those in our BGSM consensus, but there, there are five really I mean, things that we all should make sure we do. The first tip is to adopt a consistent sleep schedule wherever possible. And that includes at the weekends. So that in, that means having a consistent bedtime and wait time in the weekdays and at the weekends, wherever you can. The second one is to avoid large meals, to avoid high doses of caffeine and alcohol close to bedtime, because that can impact sleep latency and the quality of the sleep. The third one is to, again, it sounds a bit obvious, but to make sure the bed and the pillow are really comfortable and the room is cool, dark and quiet. And, you know, whenever I speak to athlete groups, you know, one of the complaints is the travel for the athletes and the comfort of the beds and pillows. And I know we can't take or always take our bed and pillow with us, but the comfort's really, really important, as obvious it sounds. The fourth one is to establish a relaxing bedtime routine. So as you alluded to, you know, go screen free from about 30 minutes or so before bed and, and, and just get into bed when you feel sleepy. 
And the final one is a very generic recommendation, which is that we know that taking on some exercise during the day, you know, shortens sleep latency. So it speeds up the time, you know, it takes to get to sleep. But of course, our athletes are going to be exercising anyway. And so those are simple sleep recommendations that that we would recommend the athletes follow to optimize their hygiene. You know, there are are other things that we talked about in in the consensus review that the regular use of sleep education, that seems to be beneficial. Good studies show that if you have simple sleep education for your athletes, this can improve sleep uh, duration and quality. But you do have to do that quite regularly because the improvements in sleep duration and quality seem to wane quite quickly. That's what those studies show. You know, you need to screen athletes to identify if there are more serious sleep problems. And of course, we talked a little bit about this, but we would encourage the afternoon nap in the athletes and to consider this sleep banking or sleep extension before important competition. Yeah, I I, I love that. And, and, and actually in the BJSM paper, you summarised that as part of your sleep toolbox for practitioners, which is one of my favourite ways of of looking at uh, what we have available as as sports nutrition practitioners uh, in terms of things like education and tools and gadgets and supplements and and so on are all part of our practitioners toolbox and that brings us back to the you know not just to to having a nice packed stuffed full, uh, you know a toolbox full of all of these tools and strategies but it is understanding what the strengths and limitations of those of those tools actually are but but given given a major emphasis of 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 mine and the podcast and our listeners is very much on nutrition i just wanted to end this conversation specifically about nutrition and the impact that that can have on sleep quality and or quantity and 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 you know just grab your expertise on this topic what are your thoughts on that in terms of what the evidence tells us and practically speaking what can we as performance nutritionists actually do with these tools in our toolbox? Yeah, there are many, there are many uh, available supplements out there on the market that uh, purport to improve sleep quality and increase sleep duration. But there are, you know, there's limited, well-controlled research to support those claims. I think the one we know most about is, of course, caffeine. And we did talk about that in the consensus. And of course, we we know that that caffeine is stimulant. Um, We need to be very careful about the dosings of caffeine, particularly near to bedtime. We need to avoid, as I said in my tips, we need to avoid, um, you know, caffeinated beverages, et cetera, tea, coffee and the like in the evening when we want to get to sleep. So that's the one we know most about. And we know that some athletes are taking caffeine to try and improve their performance. So there's a rub there, you know, it might improve your performance, but it may well increase the time it takes you to fall asleep after your performance at night, and it might disturb the quality. So I think caffeine's the one we know most about in terms of sleep latency. The other supplements that we, you know, that supposedly alter serotonin and your sleepiness level, when we're not clear that the studies are not particularly well designed with rigorous controls to allow us to determine whether those supplements do improve sleep quantity and quality. What about something that uh, we've certainly got into this a lot on the podcast lately, and it's a big thing in sports nutrition now, particularly in elite female athletes, aesthetic athletes, and so on, is is 
relative energy deficiency. Energy availability is something that we're trying to stay on top of as performance nutritionists. Is there a link there to, to sleep? I, I would imagine that the, mostly the link is that we know that sleep seems to be more of a problem for female athletes. There was some good work with uh, French international athletes showing that the psychopathology was was more prevalent in female athletes than male elite athletes. And of course, you know, problems with anxiety disorder, stress, depression, we know relate to sleep and sleep disturbance. So uh, that might be uh, part of that connection, Lauren, in, in individuals who, who maybe have low energy availability. Yeah, be well, maybe that's some future research, which I think could be of interest, right? And I know that initially, particularly in the nutrition field, there were concerns about the impact of eating too late and whether or not that would result in adequate digestion, absorption, and so on. And we subsequently have discovered for the most part that that, that isn't such a big problem. But the proximity of meals to sleep and maybe the types of food i'm thinking heavy meals if we can be very general about that is there anything we should be uh concerned about or or aware of yeah again there's some good research that shows that if you eat a meal four hours before bed compared with eating a meal an hour before bed that unsurprisingly eating the meal one hour before bed it lengthens the time it, it takes you to get to sleep, your sleep latency. So we'd certainly recommend eating a few hours or more as best you can before bedtime. So avoid those large meals close to bedtime. Avoid the caffeine close to bedtime and alcohol as well, Lauren. Yeah. No, that's brilliant. Well, I mean, I feel like I need a nap. <laughs> <laughs> I need to bank some sleep. Yeah, My kids yeah. are out the house, so I'm going to go bank some sleep now. There's a lot there that we talked about. There's obviously stuff we didn't talk about a because we haven't got time but also you know the listeners can actually read those narrative reviews consensus statements which i'll link to in the uh the show notes on the uh, page for this particular podcast episode but obviously i also mentioned we have had these conversations in the past and with dr shona halson who went into a, a, a great deal in things like sleep architecture and the impacts of of travel and jet lag and where we are on the planet and light and day and all that stuff, which is all worth listening to. But Neil, I just wanted to say thank you so much. I guess the last thing I wanted to ask you is, is where do you feel the research needs to go in this area? What are the sort of things that you're working on? You know, what, what needs to be done? I, I think it's exactly as I said before. Thank you, Lauren. I, I think it's that we need to consider the athlete's individual sleep needs and simple measures like how refreshed they feel in the morning. That's where our focus is on trying to use behavioral interventions, for example, to improve sleep quality in the hope that that might you know, reduce their susceptibility to infections. Thank you so much, Neil, for your time today. It's been another really enjoyable conversation. You did incredibly well despite having COVID. It does not go unnoticed. Um, so we really appreciate that. And like I say, I'll put links to everything. People can look up your your work and your research. And uh, I look forward to having you back on We Do Science uh, at another point in the future when 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 this topic evolves even further. Thanks, Lauren.